0: You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is.
1: From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am
0: I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated.
1: I'm Adam Wigger.
0: This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again.
1: And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Baskin. Today on 1050 Baskin, we are extremely excited to have Professor Herrera on the podcast to talk about Russian politics, the recent Alexei Navalny's situation, and what the Biden administration is going to do diplomatically in this new year. There's so much to talk about, so let's jump right in.
0: First things first, Professor Herrera, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really, really great to have you.
2: Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here
0: because this is your first and hopefully first of many times on 1050 Bascom, we'd like to just start by asking a little bit about you and your background and research interests. We're curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a college professor and studying your line of work. Were you a politics junkie as a kid or did you kind of catch the itch in high school or college? Just What shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards political science and international relations and Russia and Eurasia in particular?
2: Oh, thanks. Well, I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say extremely interested in politics in high school, but I did go to a a high school that was um, an interesting magnet high school in Los Angeles that was focused on humanities and uh, we had a debate team and mock trial and um, that we had a, a alternative newspaper that I worked on that was kind of a, a little bit political but um I wasn't I went to I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, I went to Dartmouth College and I was going to be a chemistry major and I had a very strong interest in going to France on a study abroad, that was that was what I was going to do in college. um so I went to I went to college, I went to France, but I went to France in the spring of 1990. So getting there in January 1990, which is only a couple months after November 1989 was when the Berlin Wall fell and like a lot of. Um, sophomore um, study abroad kids I traveled around, including to Berlin and East Berlin, and at that time Czechoslovakia and Hungary, which were you know just months after the Berlin Wall had opened, and so I was just really fascinated by what I saw in Eastern Europe. I didn't know anything about it. I learned quickly that French didn't get you very far in Eastern Europe. <laughs> but I was interested in that. And um, so when I got back to Dartmouth, I took a class. Actually, no, I took the class in not in the in the winter of 1989 was on world communism, actually. So before I went to before I went to France, I had taken a class on world communism in the winter. So January ish, 1989. So before the Berlin Wall falls. So I had taken a class on world communism. But then when I went to Eastern Europe, you know, it was very, lot just like a lot of crazy different things going on. Shortages, just, um, just the kind of incomprehensibility to what was happening there. So I was really interested in that. Um, and I got back to Dartmouth and I decided to take German. <laughs> because people didn't speak French, and I was very interested in the Soviet Union. But I didn't have any background, so I didn't know what I should do. So I started taking German, and then my German teacher asked me why I was taking German. Why did I switch from French to German? And I said, oh, I'm really interested in the Soviet Union. (laughs) But Dartmouth actually has a very high-level, award-winning Russian department. And actually, Joseph Brodsky was our, my graduation speaker. So it's just, you know, humorous, like, why don't you just take Russian? But I I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. But after talking to my German teacher, I switched to Russian, finally. And then um, the other thing that was really important in my life is I took a class with a professor, Tom Nichols, who actually has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter now, Radio Free Tom. He's a five-time Jeopardy! champion. I mean, he's a very charming, very smart, interesting person. He works on civil-military relations and the Soviet Union, and so he became my undergraduate advisor and mentor. and And he is the one that encouraged me to go to graduate school. So I, by then, I had given up on being a chemistry major, and I became a political science major. And really, um, Tom Nichols was just really uh, very helpful in, um, you know, giving me advice and suggesting I go to graduate school. Um, and so then I did that. I applied to graduate school and that's how I ended up University of Chicago.
1: How did you get to Madison? And I know your first job out of grad school was also at Harvard. So can you talk a little bit about like your uh, your yeah. grad life?
2: Yeah, well, I loved graduate school. I mean, a lot of people don't, but I actually loved, I loved it every day of it. Um, and it was a, you know, it was a great intellectual experience at Chicago. Um, and I was lucky enough to I spent a lot of time in Russia. Also, I spent two and a half years doing field work in Russia, um, and then, and that was in the mid '90s. So you know, it was an interesting time in Russia. I went, I went back to Russia. I finally went to Russia for the first time in 1993, and then I went there every summer. And then I spent two and a half years there. Then I came back to write up a dissertation and. You know, at that time, that was kind of the beginning of a lot of people doing research, a lot of foreigners doing research in Russia, because it opened up after 1989. So I was able, I was kind of in an early, not the first, but an early generation of people doing research in Russia. So yeah, then I um, was lucky enough to get a job at Harvard and um, I had a great time there. Um, I was part of the Davis Center for Russian Studies, it was a really good environment, but um, the way to Madison was very, very very easy in that um, at Harvard, I met Andrew Kidd, um, who was also in the government department. We, he was also a University of Chicago <laughs> graduate, actually. But he had gotten a job in California at Riverside. Um, so we kind of crossed paths, we knew people, but we didn't really know each other. But then he got a job at Harvard. Um, so we met there and we got married. That was fine. And then he got a job at Penn. So then there's a moment when he's at University of Pennsylvania. I was still at Harvard and um, there was a situation in Wisconsin where a number of faculty had re- had moved in one year, moved or retired, which I guess was maybe 2005 or six, sometime around then. A lot of faculty left all at once. So they were kind of on a hiring spree, which coincided with Andy and I being in different cities. But also the person who was at Wisconsin was Mark Bisinger. Coincidentally, Mark Bisinger was an assistant professor at Harvard, and I—it's not exactly that I had his job. There was one person in between, but like there was a junior professor position at Harvard. Mark bisinger had that position. Then he went to Madison. We work on some similar topics, nationalism and things like that. Anyways, Mark left. Um, a number of people in IR had left, so there was openings at Wisconsin in comparative politics and in international relations. Um, and then and we were kind of on the market at that point so we both got jobs here and moved here and and that's great i mean i actually love i love living here i love the apartment, and even
1: with, even the, with the, the snow people. today
2: oh i'm so pro winter i guess maybe it's because of being from california yeah i i think every snow day is a good day in wisconsin i woke up this morning worried that it was gonna rain i thought oh no is it gonna ruin everything but no it's nicely snowing out there so I'm very pro winter, especially when you don't you're not traveling anywhere, right? (laughs)
1: So that is really fair. That is really fair. Uh, And one more question before we move on to you know, talking about your research and actual current events. Uh, You know, a lot of students listen to this, and a lot of students are interested in pursuing careers like yours, and you know, doing field work like you did in Russia. So, uh, what is some advice for students that you have? as they are you know, developing their own careers and looking for opportunities like that?
2: I think the language, language training is really important in going someplace. But I also think, to me, one of the most important things is for people to not count themselves out of doing something if they don't have a background in it. So sometimes people study, like I had no family whatsoever in Russia I had no, no connection at all, which was partly why, you know, the undergraduate mind made me think, well, I studied French, I'll study German because it's <laughs> close. Even know, that makes no sense. Like, why not just study Russian? Okay, so the thing is, it's important to not, not do something because you don't have a background in it. I think getting some advice from people is a, is a good idea too, because um, faculty or, or advisors that can, Give you advice might help you open up to something that you're not already comfortable with, and the language training. I mean, people vary in their language abilities. Some people can learn languages very easily, and some not. I would say I didn't learn easily. I learned by just constantly working on it, um, and that that works too. It takes longer, but it, it works also. Um, so I think taking advantage of learning languages, especially if you're at UW, is you know is a great is a great idea, um, but also finding study abroad opportunities, finding opportunities to go um, in the summers if you can in, in different ways is important. So I think the language training is really important, but it also shouldn't be an, an, a barrier that you don't think you can get over. You can get over it just by taking the language, um, but you have to, you know, you have to start somewhere.
0: Let's jump into some recent news regarding uh, Russia that um, maybe should have received some more attention here in the States. So back in December, amidst the tumultuous aftermath of the 2020 presidential election, which was dominating news coverage at the time, in a bit of the background, suspected Russian hackers had breached the computer networks of the US Defense Department, the Commerce Department, Treasury Department, State Department, Homeland Security, and even the part of the energy department that oversees America's nuclear arsenal, along with Microsoft and a bunch of other Fortune 500 companies. Reportedly, it's one of the largest and most brazen attack uh, uh, cyber attacks in American history. I want to try to unpack this. So let's start with the basics. What happened? And why do you think that Russia decided to commit this attack?
2: Okay, so I think there's a lot of pieces to even understanding what happened. Um, I mean, the first thing that happened is there was a lot of other news in the US at the time and in the rest of the world. So I actually think the attention devoted to it, to understanding what happened may even have suffered because people were focused you know, on other things. But anyways, people became aware in mid-December of this security breach. At that moment, as I recall, they had suspicions that it was Russian hackers, but they weren't, you know, 100% sure. Basically, there is, there the sophistication is that it wasn't just um, an email phishing scheme, which is what, you know, uh, there was one part of the 2016 hacking, where they get somebody's password and get into one person's email. So it's not just that. And it also wasn't just You break into one company somehow and um, it's a company specific thing instead the sophistication was that it was a third party. um, company solar winds in Texas That's some kind of business software and they provide automatic updates so just like we get updates of your iPhone or whatever. Um, So the the hackers targeted a company. That worked with a number of US agencies and other companies that has to be a good enough, secure enough company to be able to be working with all these companies, and yet somehow they have breached that company, which allow them to use these tokens that allow them to put this malware in. And it went undetected for months. So they think that it happened in the spring actually of 2020, but they didn't detect it until later. They also don't know like so you didn't the news was not that somebody published something on wikileaks therefore you know there was a hack it was that the security firms figure out a couple of different ones in december that something has gone wrong and they try to figure out the extent of it they try to take that software off etc so we still don't have the what information did they get we don't we don't really know that's why it's a little bit overwhelming to think like Wow, it's all these agencies, all these companies. We don't even know the extent of the problem. Um, we know one of the sources, but we don't really know the extent. Later, with um, you know some other sleuthing, uh, it was linked back to back to Russia. But one thing I want to point out about, about hacking generally. Um, I mean, I'm not a cybersecurity expert, but just from con- from contributions uh, con- conversations on U.S. Russia relations this topic comes up every so often. So hackers are not um, geographically limited. They don't tend to be especially pro-government, pro-law and order, or particularly patriotic. I mean, they're people that kind of do their own thing. I mean, that that's what make them makes them sort of different. They're not just like, oh, I'm a person that follows the rules and I never do anything I'm not allowed to do. The whole concept of hacking is that you're trying to do something that you're not really allowed to do and you're trying to use your wits to get around something right in the case of the individual so there's always. And you're never going to stop that there's always going to be individuals all over the world every day every hour saying my greatest dream is to break into MIT's computer system or something like that right it's just it's just a thing that's out there, so what's important about that is you cannot solve the problem of hacking, say, by having a treaty between two countries or having the two presidents say, okay, let's agree to be nice to each other or or having good relations like between the US and Canada. It doesn't mean that no one in Canada or no one in America would ever try to hack into some computer system housed in a different country. I mean, that's just not how hacking works. So I think there's an interesting aspect of international relations and hacking in that it is literally a global phenomenon that does not respect borders and it doesn't respect authority of you know uh, older people saying kids don't do this I mean that's just it's just not how it works so it's a constant barrage and that's why um, uh, countries governments etc have to always be will have to be vigilant all the time about it and and that's why that's why when we say it's Russian hacking I just like to note that like, Okay, there are definitely geostrategic concerns between the US and Russia about, you know, what they want to do, who controls space, who controls this and that, but there's, it goes beyond just what the governments want. Um, and there may be um, you know, there they, with the 2016 hacking and um, recent efforts, you know, there is some evidence linking to government sponsored agencies in Russia that there, it's not just a random individual in Russia, but it's, it is state sponsored to some extent, but I just want to note that it's not as it's not just limited to governments
0: with that point in mind, how should the US government respond to the attack?
2: Yeah, that is a good question. And I'm afraid to say I don't know the answer to that Um, because, for example, one of the um, one of the arguments in 2016 about not in the Obama administration about not going public with the extent of Russian hacking was that it would lead to further any kind of retaliation would lead to to further attacks. And in this case, when we don't know the extent of what the information they've gathered, we don't know the extent of what could be done. Um, it's hard to gauge how much you should risk in terms of I mean, obviously, try to put, like everybody tried to take care of the particular solar winds problem so that that's obvious, but in terms of like government to government retaliation, what can you do? Um, I think that at the moment there's like so many issues on the US-Russian relations agenda that, you know, there's the bounties for the soldiers. (laughs) There's the recent events that we'll talk about in terms of democracy and Navalny, etc. So there's so many other things. There's the New New START nuclear weapons um, arms treaty. So um, there's There's a lot of other things, so I think that the uh, US government would have to think about this in the context of all the other things that they want to achieve and how to how to address this, but I mean I think we have to be aware that we can't. Be complacent, but I will say from my experience in talking with to some extent with um, in conversations with military people and people who work on nuclear weapons in the US, they assure us that they use this 1960s technology in terms of computers, they don't update like they're not like you cannot launch a US nuclear weapon from the Internet like they don't, they don't do that. So I don't think that the I don't think there's that I think that threat of, you know, a nuclear launch or something like that is, is not, that's not serious. Um, It's more about information shared among agencies, etc, and that sort of thing. But we don't really know the extent, so it's hard, to, it's hard to know exactly how to respond other than trying to make our computer systems safer.
1: Now I think we can move on to the issue that you just brought up or that you brought up in that last question of Alexei Navalny. And can you talk a little bit about what role Alexei Navalny plays like in, in Russian politics right now or what role he's playing right now?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting story. So Alexei Navalny started out as a um, anti-corruption blogger, and he started writing about real estate deals and about government officials amassing wealth. He was kind of like a kind of an annoyance at first where he kept pointing out, like, look at this guy's wearing. I mean, it's kind of funny that this recent I don't know if you followed it, this little um, kerfuffle about Biden's Rolex these watches among Russian um, oligarchs are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, I didn't even know that watches cost that much. Um, so they would, you know, they would, for some reason, wear these like extremely expensive watches and then um, they would take pictures and then, you know, those watches that you can see the price of them online, etc. So it's like kind of small, I don't want to say small scale, but if only for a long time was constantly pointing out the corruption among Russian <laughs> officials. Um, And he was somewhat tolerated, but um, in 2007, the government got tired of him, and they brought this, um, So this is a thing they do, is he's accusing the government of corruption, so they accuse him of corruption. And not only do they accuse him of corruption, they jail his brother. They accused his brother and they jailed him. Okay, so Navalny also, this case from 2007, He also went to jail for, he was spent about a year in house arrest, Um, but then he got out and there's a lot of speculation, like how did he get out? Why did the courts let him out? Why didn't they put him in jail for the rest of his life then? And there's some speculation that he actually has some support within the government, within the judiciary, like why didn't they just lower the boom then? Okay, well he started trying to run for office. Um, He's of course banned from running for president due to, you know, technicalities and things like that. He has been trying to lead protests over time, and since around 2011, 12, there have been these sporadic protests in Russia. He tried to run for uh, mayor of Moscow, etc. Okay, so and the kind of the protests kind of come up and then they die down because the government uses repression. Um, and in August, Navalny was poisoned with Novichok. Novichok is a is a chemical weapon. Held only by, as far as we know, the Russian FSB. Okay, so it's not a widely available um, chemical agent, and it's what was implicated in the Skripal attempted murders in the UK. So you may recall that in um, uh, 2017, 2018, there there was a case of that poisoning um, with Skripal, his daughter, etc. But a homeless person died in that in that case. Okay, so it's the same exact agent right and it's linked to Russia so Navalny is on he gets on a plane and he immediately falls ill in Siberia. The pilots immediately land the plane, he gets taken to a hospital and then again for reasons that are not quite known, the Russian government allows him to be flown to Germany. So he gets out of the country he goes to Germany and he recovers so it's like he's it's very dramatic like he's almost dead but. He comes back to life. And he's also like a very charismatic person. If you see pictures of him, he's like young, blonde hair, blue-eyed, like very fit. He has this very beautiful wife. They have this loving relationship. It's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a fairy tale and he's very bold. So he is in Germany and he also is working with different people to figure out how he was poisoned. And this was an, another amazing thing he impersonated an FSB. FSB is the successor to the KGB. He impersonated an FSB officer and he called. So he figured out from Bellingcat is another um, online organization that works with him. And they figured out FSB officers who had been tracking him for years, following him on planes, etc. And And Navalny himself, even though he has a YouTube channel, his voice is very distinct, et cetera. He calls up on the phone An FSB officer pretending to be an FSB officer and basically asking him. Tell me why you know it didn't work tell me why the poisoning of Navalny didn't work and the guy explains to him, the whole thing of where they put the Novichok which is on his underwear. Um, And that's why he's calling Putin now (laughs) Vladimir the poisoner the underpants poisoner so but it's isn't I mean it is an amazing like crazy story on YouTube that Navalny posts showing that the FSB, it's like incontrovertible um, that the FSB is behind his poisoning. So anyways, he comes back to Russia and he is, first of all, his plane is diverted because they closed the airport down. So his plane is diverted from one of the Moscow airports to another one. He gets to the other Moscow airport and they immediately arrest him. But since January 23rd, they've now arrested 11,000 people in Russia. They've had bigger protests than um, they have had at any time under Putin regime in over 100 cities. And on Tuesday of this week, Navalny, you know, it's a it's a kind of fake court where um, they just set up this courtroom and, you know, they're trying him and they there's a kind of picture going around the Internet of a internal security service guy in a mask with a picture of Putin behind him. Anyways, is a Kind of show trial, totally show trial. The judge just read the decision. It wasn't there wasn't any real deliberation. But um, Navalny, he made a, he basically wrote out on a piece of paper and showed it to the cameras that said he's sentenced in this thing to two years, um, eight months in a penal colony. And he writes out this this placard that says, "I'm not afraid, and you should not be afraid either, or don't you be afraid." I mean, it's very moving. Um, and his his full statement, I think it's in the New York Times either some, earlier this week, the, not the full statement, an edited one, but you can you can easily find the full statement online. But basically, Nivali is telling people, don't be afraid. That fear is what's keeping this dictatorship going, and don't be afraid. Just keep going, keep going out there. They can't, you know, they can't kill everybody, they can't arrest everybody, so everybody just has to go out there. But it, you know, it's it's a kind of heartbreaking situation that he find themselves in. Um, oh, and he also like this week, just to like stir the pot, or I guess last week, um, released this video of um, Putin's palace in um, southern Russia, this like huge enormous palace um, that Putin claims is not his, but you know it, it's that has gotten Uh, I don't know, 50 million views or something like that on his YouTube channel. So he continues to push the corruption message and the government just doesn't know what to do with him because they don't want to make a martyr out of him. But he's the most, one of the most charismatic opposition leaders there is. And so they're extremely worried about him.
0: Can you talk a little bit about his politics? We we know that he is in opposition to Putin, but on what specifically does he oppose Putin on? How do his politics and what his supporters seek to accomplish with him differ from the politics of Vladimir Putin?
2: Okay, so number one, he is an anti-corruption crusader. That's like item number one for him. So the government ministers and people who have, and the billionaires, like he's against, like he said, even from prison, his his statement at his uh, sentencing that the only thing Russia is increasing in right now is billionaires, and so number one, he's against corruption. Number two, he is frequently posting pictures of you know dilapidated buildings or um, people standing in line for things or some kind of like failures of Russian economic development, and saying you know this is a, a this is a great country, it's a rich country, but look at what condition people are living in, normal people are living in because of um, the corruption at the top. He actually even mentioned that as well, like the minimum wage um, in his sentencing. So I think that like he is for, he's kind of a populist in that way, um, in the sense of being anti-elite and being in favor of um, redistribution for sure. Um, One of the parts of him or his political program that's somewhat controversial is um, that he is considered by some people to be a Russian nationalist. He made some comments, I think, literally like decades ago about people in the caucuses that get brought up as, you know, he's a chauvinistic um, person. But I guess I would say that number one, there's a lot of, I think he's definitely a nationalist in the sense that he's pro Russia. So, like, he could have stayed in Europe, he could have stayed in Germany, for example. Um, And he knew he was going to be arrested when he went back, and um, he did it. He did it anyways, because he said, you know, I'm Russian, this is my country, I'm not going to stay out of my country. Um, So I mean, actually, a lot of my um, work on identities um, and on nationalism and even on Russian nationalism talks about the different aspects of what it means to be a nationalist and you can think about that in the US context too. that um, there's different ways to show patriotism and some are xenophobic in terms of being against others, and others are just positive about, you know, think of things that you're proud of the country for doing. So I think that he is kind of complicated on that question of nationalism because, on the one hand, he's definitely pro Russia. But I mean, Russia is a great country. There, you know, if you look at the contributions to arts, literature, science, etc., Russia has contributed a lot to the world. There's a lot of smart, interesting, great people there. So it's not it's not that there's anything wrong with that, um, but there, is, there are some questions about to what extent he's an ethnic Russian chauvinist. That that's something that people bring up. But naturally, you know, his political um, uh, enemies would harp kind of harp on on that. Um, but uh, I think the general program is to make Russia a better country in the sense of um, improving economic development for common people as opposed to just for a select view and to reduce the corruption in the country.
1: Is there, or do you at least have a sense of, like, the popular support of Navalny versus Putin? Or, you know, if there's any kind of indications for those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, so we, we know a fair amount about support for Putin. Um, but actually, one of Putin's strategies is that he uses, not just against Navalny, but against any opposition people, is to block them from TV, radio, anything, like not allow them to have a voice. So Navalny's YouTube channel is one of the main ways that he communicates with people. Um, But like they wouldn't allow, you know, a national Navalny versus Putin um, poll, for example, because that's like Exactly what you don't want. You don't want people to think there's any alternative to Putin. Like, one of the Putin strategies is to say, it's me or nobody. Um, Or to say, okay, it's me or like some washed up crazy person from the 90s. Um, So it's just like, there's like, that's part of the Putin strategy is to say, there's no other alternative. Um, But, anyways, in terms of Putin's popularity, I just checked today, it's like around 65%. So it's, it's pretty stable, but it went up into the 80s after 2014. There's been periods since Putin has been in power since 2000. Um, and so it's it's been up there in the, you know, it's in the 80s, 70s, 60s. So um, now people have tried to figure out, is Putin really popular or not? Are people just lying? Um, Putin it looks to me like in the last couple of years his support has been pretty stable although there was just a poll official or semi-official let's say like acknowledged poll by the levada center which is one of the main polling agencies in russia that distinguishes um, support for putin by age and the younger people under 40 the support for putin is dropping rapidly but older people remain pretty stable in their support for him so the like headlines are that putin has lost the youth and um but he still has a lot of support of people um over 40. so okay that's one thing is that like there isn't there is more and more evidence of an age difference um but then there's a lot of evidence of stability but this is what i would say about polls of leaders and authoritarian regimes it's not that people are lying it's that people's options are limited so i like to think of it like this if i said to you like Okay, it's a snowstorm, we can't go out, you're in my office, here's your choices. Like, granola bar that's past its due date, Um, some peanuts from a plane that are also probably kind of old, that's probably all I have in my office right now. Okay, so those are your choices. Like, what do you want for lunch, my outdated granola bar or my outdated peanuts, okay? And let's say we're, let's say you're, let's say we're in the office for a while, we're hungry, what do you you know what are you gonna say you might say okay i'll take the peanuts right but then i say like hey look amy arrived and she brought us pop tarts and they're fresh <laughs> um, now okay you might say forget it i don't want the peanuts i'll take i'll take the pop tarts okay it doesn't mean you were lying about the peanuts it means given the choices i had i said like okay that's what i'll take right but something new could come onto the scene And that's where the previous support, which seems solid, uh, can dissipate very quickly. So I think the thing with Putin is that it's not that people, when they say, do you support him? Um, They mean it when they say, yes, I'll pick him versus say, Zhirinovsky or Zhuganov. These are people from the 90s that were like, one guy's kind of a fascist clown and the other is a communist. So it's not that you're saying, Oh no, like I'm lying, I actually supported one of them instead. It's like, well, among those three, like, okay, I'll take I'll take Putin. But the thing that Putin people understand is that if a new option came onto the scene, they could be in really big trouble. And we've seen that in other revolutionary contexts where the support seems to just disappear overnight. But, you know, having said that, we cannot deny that in opinion polls Putin continues to get a majority support of the population you know it's funny uh i think like this moment in america maybe is giving us some insight into the difficulty of being a person who disagrees with um what's happening in a central government you know that you don't the person you voted for doesn't always win uh people you think are dangerous have positions of power and like what exactly can you do about it Um, And I think a lot of people in Russia um, definitely had hope in the 90s about, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Russia in the 90s, and it never, I mean, there was a lot of economic deprivation, but I don't think anybody imagined that all of the progress towards democracy and openness and even travel was just going to disappear. Um, and it happened kind of gradually, like Putin started out, I mean, the, and a really important part of Putin's support is that uh, Russia's economy depends on oil and the price of oil, is hugely dependent on the price of oil and gas. And uh, in the 80s, uh, oil and gas prices went down, Russian economy went down, and oil and gas prices started to go up in the 2000s. And so Putin just rode this wave of high oil and gas prices and at that time he could have tried to diversify the economy but he didn't that's one of the big arguments against him he didn't do that so. The economy was objectively getting better everybody was suffering in the 90s and in the 2000s everywhere was getting better now it was getting better. In Moscow relative to other places, but still even in other regions in terms of food in terms of just like access to all kinds of consumer goods, travel, et cetera, things were getting better. So the thing is like Putin comes in and the economy is getting better and people are like, well, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. Like he's okay. And first he turns on the existing oligarchs from the nineties and people are like, mm, what's wrong with that? Like, you know, they're these corrupt rich guys. Like who cares if he exiles them? No problem. He turns on Khodorkovsky, in 2007 or eight, who's the richest man in Russia, Uh, he owned Yukos, he breaks up Yukos, and people are like, whatever, like, Khodorkovsky, he's no angel, you know, but it's just systematic, one by one, he turns against the oligarchs, he creates a new set of oligarchs, but oil and gas don't stay up (laughs) indefinitely, and Putin starts turning on civil society actors, he turns on Navalny, turns on others, and so by the time it's become apparent that Russia is really become authoritarian. Let's say, I don't know, 2007, eight, nine, sometime around then. It, you kind of stuck with him. Like, how do you get rid of him now? Because um, he's systematically gotten rid of everybody who opposes him. So it became very difficult by that moment. But protests start happening in 2011. But, you know, in 2012, May 2012, a lot of, high school students, young people go out to protest in favor of democracy, and they just beat them up on the streets. So, you know, the use of violence and fear is increasingly what the Putin regime turns to. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who would like the country to be what they call a normal country, you know, that you can travel to that just has like regular housing, normal schools, normal jobs. Um, That doesn't want, you know, a lot of hassles with other countries, Um, and Putin has made that more and more difficult, but people, how do they find their voice to, um, to go against that? I mean, they published, for example, among these 11,000 people who've been arrested, this list of crimes, and some of the crimes literally are standing, (laughs) because you're, you're not allowed to stand somewhere, because you could be protesting, Um, so they just are using a lot of violence against people to um, create a sense of fear to stop people from protesting. They completely control elections, so people just have limited options, even if they disagree. But I mean, I don't think there is. I would not say there's widespread widespread support for dictatorship. However, there there's concern about a civil war or about unrest. Nobody wants to. Have have that overall, you know, like a a real revolutionary period, because people did go through that in the 90s, and they don't want to do that again. Um, But they don't really know what to do. I mean, it's hard to know if you're just a like any of us listening to this, like, what would you do in that situation? But we can also ask ourselves, when we see something undemocratic in this country, what exactly can you do? What exactly is the right thing to do? And I think that's what, unfortunately, a lot of people in a lot of countries right now, um are facing those those choices like how much to get involved what's the best way to get involved what should i do
1: we are just about out of time and we we want to make sure we get your take on what the biden administration and what this new approach to diplomacy is or what you might think it might look like as we move forward now
2: yeah it's a a really good question um so number one i think I expect there to be more engagement. And you can see, for example, on the restarting of the nuclear weapons arms negotiations and the New START Treaty, um, I think that's, one part of it is about restricting um, nuclear proliferation, um, reducing the number of weapons. But another part of it is, that's something that Russia cares a lot about because it gives them status as somewhat equal to the US in being a nuclear superpower. So actually just having discussions, one of the things Russians were very upset about with Trump and to some extent the George W. Bush administration was just the unilateral cutting off of discussion about arms negotiations. So they found that to be very insulting. So actually just discussing things is gonna be important, but I think it's important to note that right now, since 2014, Crimea, the Russian invasion of Crimea really Change things in that all military to military contact was cut off our language programs we have had a russian flagship program it's uh for some years funded by the department of defense at uw madison and uw madison has had language study um in russia even during the cold war but all those language programs got cut off and shifted to kazakhstan and um latvia because of the 2014 um, cutting of ties. So I think that the and um, basically our embassies are closed around the world because of coronavirus, which is effectively cutting off student visas and student travel. So on the on the level of like everyday people, it's not easy to travel because of the coronavirus. Um, Students cannot travel. And in terms of government engagement, a lot of it has been cut off since 2014. So one of the things I expect is that the Biden administration is likely to at least restart discussion of something. Like you have to start somewhere to even talk about things. Now I think that there's some areas of cooperation for the U.S. and Russia, namely in the Arctic, on nuclear weapons in Iran, which had been a centerpiece of the Biden administration. I expect there to be much more engagement, and I expect the Biden administration to fill offices in the State Department, in the Department of Defense, um, et cetera, in order to start some of these um, conversations. Now the, the challenge is Putin is still an untrustworthy person. And so I'm not you know, optimistic that there's all kinds of things that are gonna change, but at least there would be some discussion uh, among people across um, different offices.
0: Uh, I, there's just so much Russia to talk about. We could talk about Russia all day, I think. So Professor Herrera, thank you so much for coming on today it was great having you we would love to have you back
2: oh thank you so much it's um i'm just so impressed by the great job you guys do and so i would be happy to come back anytime and thank you very much for having me on
1: for more information about 1050 bascom visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 bascom Ten Fifty Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely. For now.